Lingua Britannica is a podcast that uses ethnographic interviews to study language use in the extreme metal community. We are studying a music scene known for its love of themes and topics generally considered offensive, and it is likely that some episodes will touch on topics or opinions some listeners may find tasteless or ethically problematic. Ethnographic researchers aim to adopt the interviewee's point of view so that we can draw out and study the attitudes, beliefs, and practices that are important to them. We want to make it clear that in presenting these conversations here, we do not endorse any of their content. Our aim is to explore the thought processes behind language use in this long-running, international and yet understudied scene. And welcome back to Linga Britannica with me, Jess Bernie-Smith, and my co-host, Wes Robertson. Good morning. Uh, in this episode, we're talking to Aaron Carey of Netatwin in West uh, Virginia. Thanks for coming to speak to us, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. I appreciate you making the time, especially given the in-West time difference. <laughs> yeah. Yes, very large time difference, but no, uh, it's, yeah, no problem at all. So just to begin, uh, how would you describe Natachman's music if, if you're introducing it to somebody that, say, knew about metal but had never heard you before? Uh, what kind of broad genres would you say that it, that it fits under? Um, at the current moment, like uh, this uh, album, Kanaw Black, that we have coming out, it's it's probably the, the most percentage of extreme metal. Mm. Um, I don't think it's sufficient to just say it's black metal or it's death metal or folk metal or whatever. Um, but I, I guess maybe folk metal would be the, the best tag for that due to, you know, the, we don't have satanic lyrics and, uh, with traditional subjects that the black metal is known for, but we, you know, borrow extensively from that style musically, but the themes are more of, um, the history of, uh, what's now the United States. So I guess you could say like historical folk metal with acoustic elements. Hmm. I don't know. That sounds yeah. descriptive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so when did you first get into metal music and, you know, the styles that you've just described were those, those the styles of metal that you were first drawn to? I uh, know that not really. I wasn't even aware of, well, at the time, we're talking maybe Bathory and Merciful Fate existed when, when, mm -hmm. and you know, I found out about this a little later. Um, I think that I heard some kind of uh, more like glam rock, hard rock type of stuff. I remember hearing Maiden when I was a little kid, and I think in the periphery it had some effect on me. And then later on, hearing uh, Guns N' Roses and stuff like that. That was the first concert I ever went to when I was in fourth grade. Uh, was was Guns N' Roses on the Appetite for Destruction tour? Fourth grade, and fourth grade. Yeah, my, my mom was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. Like that. Yeah, so uh, I was lucky to get to do that, and so um, right around that same time, I had neighbors that I'd ride the bus to school with that had the jean jackets, and they had Megadeth peace cells on their jackets, and. Um, Slayer, Hellawaits, and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, what's this? You know, this doesn't look like Guns N' Roses. 
and uh, Metallica just kind of exploded around here at that time. And I think that was maybe the second concert I went to was Metallica on the Black Album tour. And uh, that was my sister that time that took me to that show. But um, I started getting into playing guitar at that time. I mean, I was just like, that's that's what I want to do. I'm not into like basketball. I'm not into, I don't know, whatever that people are into at that age. I think I was 10 and uh, got a guitar, started taking some lessons. And the first thing I wanted to learn was Iron Maiden. I learned most of their early albums as, as quickly as I, I could. I got kind of obsessed with that and developed my ear. And um, as I got a little more into school, I think I felt a little bit isolated from a lot of the other people because I had long hair. I wore, you know, Sepultura shirts and Metallica mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And there wasn't too many people into that. My best friend was into all that stuff and everybody else is, you know, kind of looking at you like you're like you're a freak. And um, so it wasn't long before I got into death metal because, um, well, Wes, you look younger than me, but we had this show called Headbangers Ball. Yeah. You're on TV. Yeah. No, I, 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 I am and, a bit younger than you, but I, I remember Headbangers Ball um, with, you know, so it was just before kind of everything was on the internet. It was like the one place that I, I remember being able to find a lot of metal when I was growing up. Yeah. Yeah, pre-internet, it was like one night I watched it and they had Immortal Rights by Morbid Angel. And I was like, whoa, this is beyond even like Sepultura and stuff. This is cool. And they had Napalm Death, mm-hmm. stuff for the children on there and Entombed when Clandestine came out. And uh, it was that explosion. I'm not the only one here, of course. This happened to a lot of people, but I was going out and buying obituary, pestilence, like anything I could find. And the big thing for me, my internet, my YouTube or whatever was Metal Maniacs magazine. And to sidestep that, one of the writers that I grew up uh, reading was Marty Ritkinen from Binder and Recordings. He's been releasing Nachachwan's music for 12 years now. Mm. I became one of my best friends. And so that link back to that magazine, you'd see a picture of some Dutch band or some Brazilian band or whatever. And it's like, I got to check that out, you know? Mm. So um, as I was going through all of this, um, there was a local band called Dethroned and I'd see their flyers around town. The, the drummer was very ambitious and really wanted to promote this stuff. And, you know, there's inverted crosses and goat heads and stuff. And I'm like, huh, wow. I'm not, I'm not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> What's this about? So, um, you know, it's a small town. I, I live in, you know, a town of 2,500 people. And there's not very many people in this entire region of West Virginia. It's a very narrow uh, strip of land here. And everybody eventually knows everybody else. So I got into this band playing guitar. And they were writing writing what I felt and still feel is really high quality death metal songs. Like just that cusp before everybody started doing blast beats and getting real technical mm-hmm. more of the old school stuff. And uh, that was my first couple of shows was with that band. And it was quickly, I'm talking within six months, like, Hey, did you hear emperor's demo? Did you hear this band enslaved? Have you heard Sam ale? Have you heard uh, Impaled Nazarene and Pyogenesis and all this stuff that was coming out? 
and it was like, oh, let's be black metal now. <laughs> so everybody <laughs> like, just shifted within six months. Like that stuff's cool, but this is cooler. Let's do this. This is more edgy and dangerous. So um, that phase of my life didn't last super long because I went off to college and I wanted to get serious about getting a degree and like that's the next step um so when i got down there i found some guitar classes to take because i was kind of irritated growing up that like i could figure out all these riffs by uh by using my ear or reading a tablature or something but i'm, I'm like why don't i know what these notes are why don't i understand theory and there was like no internet to look that stuff up and uh, so I decided to major in classical guitar and that didn't shift me away from metal. It like supplemented it and mm. gave me knowledge of like how to structure things in music. And uh, I mean, the old school metal approach of writing a riff and putting it with this and putting it with this. That's great. And I love old school death metal and thrash and stuff, but I like, broader structures as well and i really liked some of the experimental bands that i first heard around that time like arcturus and borknagar and and even emperor that i was mentioned they they went into this kind of broad epic territory as well um so that's kind of where i went with that and uh so that's that's my association with, with all this. And, and I guess to sidestep that too, that first band that I was in, it's like, Oh, I'm in a band now and I'm doing extreme metal type of stuff. Like, you know, I've been wanting to do since I played, started playing guitar. I want to write some songs too. And I'm going to write it about what I'm interested in, which is the local uh, Indian tribes of this area uh, in history and prehistory. And that became a theme right away. I did a Native American flute piece for the first uh, demo I was on with them. And, you know, it's kind of weird to put that element in, but I look back at it now and it's like, well, nobody else in this area was really doing death and black metal that I knew of, at least outside of Pittsburgh. And to put this Native element in there, um, that's kind of weird for the time. It's like really a, a, an unusual thing. And so that's how I got my, my start in, in what I'm doing now. Do your bandmates like cool with those ideas? Did they like that um, kind of linking right away or was it kind of um, seen as a bit odd? Strangely enough, they were like, cool. Uh, mm -hmm. I think one of them was like, I'm into satanic philosophy. And the bass player is like, he's passed away now, but he's like, I'm an atheist. It's like, well, he would write some songs that were real dreary and hopeless and dismal and, um, you know, kind of a, uh, there's nothing after you die, sort of. Mm -hmm. We're just walking around in the earth until we expire. Uh, so some songs were like that. Some were more, uh, you know, I guess evil and pagan type of things. And then I would write things that were uh, from either a war or a spiritual philosophical state or uh, standpoint of mm -hmm. uh, some ancient native philosophy. It was a weird mix, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it worked somehow. Yeah. I remember this shirt. It said like black metal mafia, native American. And I was like, that's kind of paradoxical, but I don't know. I was 15. 
everything <laughs> in metal. Just playing metal with a band was was cool enough for me. I didn't really think too too much into it at the time. So was there anything that uh, I suppose drew you to the genre initially that made you want to spend so much of your life committed to producing music that's, you know, we could call in a blanket sense metal? Uh, was there anything like specific about like the content of the music? Yeah, or, like, is it like the... Me? Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it could be uh, the, the generic thing of being a teenager and there's the like the rebellion thing. But mm. I was never really like a rebellious person. I, I've always been pretty calm and passive and not really angry about much. And, and I didn't really have much to rebel against other than the, you know, the topics of um, uh, a lot of the things that I grew up studying about, you know, what happened to Indian tribes and injustice and lack of any, lack of much social justice at the time, even uh, for, uh, for tribes and for, for minorities in the early nineties. But I mean, how aware was I really of that at 14, 15? I don't know. I was mm. just kind of like first learning about that and how, how shitty some, sectors of society can be to other people mm -hmm. just starting to wrap my head around that but you know that wasn't why i listened to metal i wasn't like trying to make my parents mad or mm -hmm. something like that you know um i don't i i wish that i had a better answer for this but i think what really spoke to me was the harmonies and guitar felt mm -hmm. like um felt like a like you were swinging a sword or something like this felt like power. Like you can play these notes and then I have the knowledge of what notes go over top of that to create bigger things like chords, mm -hmm. I guess, kind of like how uh, people that are destined to be writers um, feel a power in how they convey a character in a story mm. that I could come up with a melody that, if it sticks in my head all week, then it's probably going to stick in somebody else's head too. And they're going to mm -hmm. come back to it and listen to it. I didn't get that from the predominant music in this area, which was probably country and pop and rap. I've never been in those styles very much. Now, as a music teacher, I'm around those styles a lot and I, I don't like reject them or anything, but uh, it's not my main thing. My main mm -hmm. thing's always been metal and classical. That, that draws me in. I'm not hundred percent sure what it is, but the way that I've always thought about it is these stories that I'm telling, like uh, if you take, for example, um, lost on the trail of the setting sun from, from heart of Akamon or generations of war from the new record, um, maybe weeping eye or red ochre from azimuths. What other genre could I like convey that with? You know what I mean? I mm. couldn't do that with country music and, and no offense to country music. I couldn't do it with jazz. I don't think. <laughs> um, but the other, um, the other genre that, that could work is, you know, the first album was completely acoustic Algonquian mythos. And yeah, this one here, Algonquian mythos was, you know, there's some, organ pieces there's some 
uh, acapella stuff there. Uh, there's some like dark folk. I know some people, I, I've used the term neo folk because that's what everybody called it back then. They're like, that's not that. That's a different thing. That's this band is neo. So I don't know what you call it, but uh, like somber sounding acoustic guitar, especially mm -hmm. steel string acoustic guitar. Um, albums I grew up with by like Phil Keggy and uh, Michael Hedges, Alex DeGrassi, people like that. It wasn't always dark, but it was sophisticated and it told a story through music without even needing any vocals. That and these weird classical guitar pieces I come up with, those are like tone poems to me. Like I can picture a scene like Battle of Fallen Timbers or something, or I can uh, picture a scene uh, of like the, the weeping eye design uh, mm -hmm. from Mount Builder times into uh, Mississippian Fort ancient culture times. That's like my musical tattoo design hmm. for lack of better. That's, I don't know. I don't have a better way to describe it, but that's, that's the way I see it or, or my brand. What are those things called? NFTs or something <laughs> <laughs> like the musical version of this, you know, this freaking skull on a pole that was at the mouth of a river saying, you know, stay out of here. We will, we will kill you. Mm. What style of music? Jazz? No, no, no. Like uh, EDM? No, it doesn't do it. But metal, the, the mighty metal of death is what gets those things across. And, mm. you know, I hear this kind of stuff in like the chasm. I don't know if you listen to that band, the chasm, but um, just otherworldly, the beyond the realm of death type of stuff that uh, just always gave me a chill of like, I don't know, that stuff's cool beyond, beyond anything else. And uh it doesn't matter whether it's classic uh, priest and maiden and slayer and uh, merciful fate, whatever, or if it's the the newest stuff. I like stuff that has kind of a dark edge, not like just uh, gore, murder and killing and stuff, but like the dark side of humanity and the dark side of spirituality. Uh, that's what I think conveys my music. That's what that's what sucked me in because. I think a lot of people can relate to this too. Um, when I first got uh, Alders of Madness and Blessed Are the Sick, I, it was kind of scary. Like, should I, should I be listening to this stuff? Is this right. like damaging <laughs> to my karma or to my, like, you know, is some deity someday going to say, you've lived a good life, but if you remember that song about vomiting on the cross that you always liked, <laughs> probably wasn't very good. So you're going to have to go to hell. So that scariness is like what kind of drug me in to, mm. um, to metal music in general. This actually links to kind of what we were going to ask next is, um, you know, were you, you said you were writing lyrics quite early on about, you know, Native American uh, mythos and stuff. Um, and now you're talking about, you know, some of the experience I think a lot of us have of opening up our first metal album book that kind of was like, oh no, I can't show my parents <laughs> what this song's about. Yeah. Um, like, were you paying attention to the lyrics of the metal songs you're listening to quite early was the lyrics um and the lyricism important to you as you know obviously the guitar work was as a guitarist but um when did you start to really focus on the lyrics wow well apparently not super early the other day i was like i had like songs from uh 
Tomb of the Mutilated and the bleeding going through my head. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like singing that stuff when I was like 15, 16. <laughs> the stuff is so nasty. There's some of the some of the lyrics and uh, I, I'm not like against it. It's art, you know, mm-hmm. it's art and there's freedom of speech. But I was like, man, that was pretty shocking. It, it's just what happens when you get old and you become a dad and you're like, would I want my kid listening to that? I don't know. But I loved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. So um, was I paying attention? Um, I think I was more to the the cadence, the the like the, the rhythmic flow of how a song, how a, vo- uh, a vocal line should go over a riff more than the words themselves. Because, you know, I love to sing along with uh, Retribution by Malevolent Creation. And again, there's some pretty nasty stuff going on in that album. And I wasn't really fully locking in on how dark some of that stuff was. Um, But, you know, not all bands were like that, too. You know, there was there's some bands that went in different directions, like uh, like Cynic. Mm -hmm. And like after, say leprosy by death like yeah. i'm a huge death fan like i got into them pretty early on and of course you know scream bloody gore you know zombie and gore subjects and things like that uh but you get into human and individual thought patterns even spiritual healing very intelligently written very deep type of things and, and i think maybe i paid more attention to that kind of stuff mm-hmm. uh and more than anything, I would say the historical stuff that, that shouldn't surprise you with what I write. But um, learning about Alexander the Great, for example, um, from Maiden and uh, lot, lots of different things, you know, different languages, different cultures that uh, Iron Maiden alone brought brought to uh, a young metalhead kid, you know, young metalhead kids all over the world if you pay attention to that stuff, you learn about culture and, you know, watching a game show, a quiz show, it's like, I'll, I'll know the answer to that question because of the maiden song. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. So I think I was paying attention to, to that stuff more. Uh, some bands were just flat out hard to really latch on to. Uh, one really good example, Carcass, their mm-hmm. early stuff was text medical textbook stuff like yeah i could remember the words but i had no idea what they meant right mm-hmm. yeah i mean did you like that or did you did you dislike that uh i thought it was super cool <laughs> i did like corporal jigsaw quandary like yeah. nobody else in in my ninth grade class would know what the hell i was talking about if i said corporal jigsaw quandary but mm-hmm. you know i felt like a uh, a coroner or something i felt like i i knew things uh like i could pass uh my exams for med school in ninth grade because i listened to carcass records i mean there's actually there's some truth to that like i um when i was uh studying for, uh, when i was going to apply to grad school um i was taking like practice tests for this thing called the gres and there's like a math section which i'd forgotten everything and this uh, english vocab section and I remember going through the practice things like, oh, I know that's an album title. I know that's I know that word. Like Osuary. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know what Osuary is. That's a song. I know that because there's a song called the Osuary. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I know what that is. And like uh, the amount of words I knew that just happened to be like, oh, oh apostasy. Yeah, that's a Behemoth album. Yeah, easy, easy. I know what that is. Yeah, it, it, very true. Uh, Death Bell Omega, stuff like that. You know, yeah. it, 
carcass. They're talking about like skeletal growths. <laughs> Where else does that come up in your entire life? <laughs> but I remember that that sticks out in one of their songs. Um, sure. And, uh, and I guess social awareness, uh, social justice issues through napalm death. They were bringing things up that uh, maybe more from an English perspective, uh, but I had no idea of these things that they were, you know, really fired up about enough to make music. And if the riffs are awesome and it's just, you know, grinding cool stuff, you know, you can uh, be more, more open to the message that they're giving, um, which I guess could, could actually turn out dangerous as well. If they're giving, mm. uh, you know, some sketch ideas or something sure. um not that not that that band in particular does but there were a lot out out there so um i think that uh i don't know where i'm going with this but <laughs> no, I, no. I, I like really really latched onto some bands and i i have close friends now that to this day songs from 30 some years ago if i say a line from this complex like atrocity song they'll be able to finish that mm -hmm. you know mm. well you said that you're really open to a lot of variation in lyrical content metal which of course you know is probably necessary because there is so much variation but you know you just mentioned that you know there obviously is a danger in being open to lyrical content that is potentially harmful so you know do you find that there is a line where you think like okay well you know this kind of isn't really about you know freedom of speech anymore this is like you know lyrical content that just doesn't make for good metal lyrics mm. yeah that's a that's a great question I, I mean one of the fundamental uh, uh i guess pillars of being an american is from the time i was born freedom of speech freedom of speech that's definitely true that we should have artistic expression so as much as i don't like it i've always been like you know that's up to people to listen to what they want to listen to even if i don't necessarily agree with it um because i can make my own choices too i can i can turn it off and there have been uh there have been bands where i've been like i'm not listening to this because like that comes from a completely ignorant standpoint but there's not really a, a cut and dry line be, between this is acceptable and that's not acceptable. And mm -hmm. it's a really, really weird uh, gray area there. So um, what was the original question again about that? Oh, just, um, yeah. At what point does it, you know, not become about freedom of expression and it's more about just, you know, lyrics that are harmful or, you know, simply not good. Just like to you more than yeah, like, to you, like yeah. not, not like not on a legal standpoint, but like, just, yeah. Oh, like where, where do I, where do I draw that? Line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Not, not like, not like, not like what lyrics should be banned. Not that yeah, like yeah, what yeah. lyrics, what lyrics make you um go, okay, okay. You know what? Even though this music's really good, I don't really want to, you know, I think when it starts to target a particular demographic of, of people or, uh, you know, it's advocating, uh, not just stories, not just like horror stories or whatever, but, you know, advocating to do this specific thing to uh, a person or an animal or something like that. And like mm -hmm. a, like a torture cruelty type of, 
type of situation uh, in the lyrics. And I'm so out of the loop with anything like that, that I really haven't heard anything like that in years. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe if I went back through my, my record collection, I might find something that was, you know, wow. You know, I never realized that these guys were, were racist or (laughs) these guys were this or that, but I don't know. I, I think, I think I, I paid pretty good attention to that kind of stuff and wasn't just like, oh, you know, so-and-so says I shouldn't listen to this band because they're misogynist or they're this or that. Like I would actually check it out and find out, well, what what's the deal? You know, um, I think a really good, almost mainstream example of that is, is typo negative. Think of how popular they ended up being and how, you know, they got a lot of radio and MTV play. They got big tours and stuff like that. All I read about them before I actually heard them was when slow, deep and hard came out and uh, people were writing into metal maniacs. And there was this big uproar about their sexist, their shitty guys. They advocate for rape and stuff like that. If you listen to those lyrics on there, that's one Uh, that you really have to make your decision on. Is he advocating for like rape of women or is he just painting this character story of like he was really hurt by a woman and these are the emotions that this fictitious guy was going through. And at the time I was like, ah, I need to watch out for that because I've never even heard of the band being like sexist or whatever at the time. You know, remember I'm like 13 or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I don't know much of what's going on yet. Um, but when I first heard them, it was Bloody Kisses. And I was like, is this band that was supposed to be like shitty rapists or something? Like, I, I don't get that vibe from this. It seems like they like love women. So I don't know. I mean, and, and there's been other bands, I'm sure, that have had some sort of like weird uh, racist kind of uh, NS sketch type of viewpoint. And then later on, they're like, that, I don't want to be like that. That's not my... That's not what I believe anymore. And they Mm -hmm. kind of reform and, uh, you know, I think should be given another chance if, unless it's like really blatant stuff that turns me off forever. Like this band sucks. Like I don't want anything to do with what they're putting out in the world, but I don't know, maybe bands are hearing a lot of stuff and they're they're 13 years old or something like that and then later on they're like no this stuff i was hearing that was garbage like we're not about that anymore so i think that's happened and i'm not mm-hmm. going to name any names but i know <laughs> yeah. some bands that that's been the case yeah i mean you can see in some in the lyrics of some bands that uh you know uh, over the years kind of you can see the themes change and stuff like that over time sure yeah i've known plenty of uh individuals that that fall into that category as well in their in their personal life went from one you know pretty questionable uh philosophy on life to uh, a much different one and usually it's through another person that comes into their life i think Mm. so yeah i hope that answered that 
Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Because, you know, it relates to our, uh, the other question we wanted to ask, which is related to this, which is, you know, uh, that given that a lot of research has argued that metal often takes a kind of distance from its lyrics, we were wondering like what your uh, position is on your relationship to your lyrics, uh, because, you know, based on you know our previous conversations, it sounds like you are, you know, really quite connected to the lyrics that you're producing, particularly because they're, um, you know, based in some sense on your ancestry. Yes. Um, I was thinking about this earlier today, actually, and not, not even in, in context of like uh, talking uh, to you two today. Um, there have been times where, uh, well, I'm sure you're aware that it takes us forever to make an album. We're like really slow. And it, it's my fault because I rate the music and I take a long time and I get sidetracked very easily. Uh, which you can probably tell from talking to me for a few minutes. I get sidetracked very easily. So um, as far as that, sometimes, uh, well, this is how it works. I come up with the musical ideas and I'll go and uh, Andrew, the other half of this project or Johannesson, um, I'll go down to his studio in Ohio uh, once a week and we meet up and work on whatever. So if I have a song, um, I'll do like a scratch demo, rough guitar idea. And then he puts down the drums and the bass. And then I put proper guitars and then we start layering. So when a song is formed and it's like kind of on my shoulders of like, okay, you're writing this stuff. So what comes next? I have to have the answer to that. And if I don't have much time that week to be, deep and philosophical and to come up with something meaningful that I'm passionate about. And the week just, you know, flies by I'm like, Oh, it's Monday again. I have to go down there tonight. I don't have any lyrics. I hate that feeling. And I don't want to feel obligated to just write something that fits or, you know, something mediocre. So um, that can take me a long time because I don't always immediately feel what that music is supposed to be lyrically about. I'd like to say that I'm some master composer that has this big <laughs> vision. However, I'm not. I'm not. In fact, we always describe these songs as it's this big block of wood and we carve it away until we find the song that's inside rather than the other way around. And I never hmm. set out to say, oh, you know, I'm going to write this song about. Um, you know, some chief in, you know, that lived in New York or something like that. Um, it, it's never like that. It always becomes about something or someone later on. And I think what I need is some time to hear the, the primitive versions of these songs and listen to them in the car, listen to them through headphones. And then words gradually come to me. And it's usually finding that rhythm rhythmic cadence and um one of andrew's pet peeves is when the lyrics go right along with the riff like a lot of people complain about black sabbath early black sabbath that ozzy did that a lot um so i try to avoid doing that and i uh, try to come up with you know well what flow is this going to be over top of this riff and then it's weird it's like words come out of the wind and oh this word here and it's slowly the song writes itself lyrically in, in 
in my head. Once I have a general theme, I sit out on my front porch and I relax and I listen to the parts over and over in my headphones and I just start writing a poem, essentially, not not even necessarily a rhyming poem, but little things for each part. And at that point, it becomes enjoyable to do. I can't force it or anything like that. But um, uh, my favorite part is taking this down there. And, uh, you know, I don't really play in a band proper. That's, you know, like back in the day, if Led Zeppelin's all sitting in a room writing songs together, the Beatles or something writing together in a room. I don't really have that element very often because there's only two of us and we don't have a live metal band lineup type of thing or anything. So when I sit down there and I'm like, here's the lyrics I have, you know, what are your thoughts? You, do, you, do you think you could come up with something better here for the way this flows? And he'll come up with a really cool hook or a really cool word or something in there that, that I listen to it back later and I'm like, so thankful I got to work with him on this because I think a lot of what you're hearing is like after an editing process, a very informal editing process of, uh, you know, one of my best buddies that, uh, that gets what I'm trying to do artistically and helps that stuff come out because yeah, I don't have the clearest vision from the get go. I, I don't know. I don't know if people who say that they do, if that's really like, you know, these genius people, you know, Shakespeare or somebody, they can write, write all this stuff and they just write volumes out of their head. If that happens because they're, uh, they have a vision of, of all that, or if it just evolves over time, because that's the only way I can figure out to do it and make this work for me. I'm a little bit surprised to, to hear that actually, because, um, you know, in reading the, the liner notes and stuff, uh, I got the impression that a lot of the songs you've written had kind of very clear, uh, modus, which I'm seeing are they, they they do but they came out kind of afterwards but what about you know you have songs for instance um uh I remember you one on um the death of Tecumseh uh yeah, is that like e even for that song did that come out after it wasn't because when I when I read the notes I thought okay you set out to make the song about this historical event was it the opposite that you made the song and then it happened to become about the historical event? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Basically every song. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I come up with these guitar riffs and, and they're weird, like little, little things because I'm, I, I teach a lot and I teach a lot of uh, lessons. And if there's a little gap in between lessons and I have a guitar in my hand, or if I'm just sitting around the house, this little part will come together and I'll either write it down or I'll, I'll make a video on my phone, come back to it later and they piece together and I basically have the whole thing laid out. And then it's like, okay, this song sounds cool. What's it about? What's it about lyrically? Should it even have any lyrics? Hmm. Um, great example of that. Shkimota from Heart of Akamon. Very unusual acoustic, largely acoustic piece with the kind of, it's kind of progressive sounding though. Um, that song has a little bit of lyrics in it and it's, I won't get into the whole thing. It's, it's a, it's a Shawnee lore about, um, uh, Fina, uh, grandmother weaves this net that gets unraveled every day. And at the end of the world, it won't get unraveled and it'll come down to the earth and it will gather all the people who were 
worthy to take them to the sky world and everybody else will fall through uh, to death for, for eternity. You know, there might be some, um, you know, influence of the rapture or something in that. But uh, there's very few actual lyrics. I wrote an entire songs full of lyrics and sang them. And I have a demo version of that song that has lyrics all through it. And I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. I said, I can't put this out. I can't put this out. It's a cool idea. The words are cool. It's too much. There's too many lyrics. It's too many melodies going at the same time. So we took them all out except those little parts. And I was like, I love it. That's great. That's all it needed. It needed like two or four lines in the whole thing. So I struggled with that one big time. October 6th that you were talking about. Um, I think that well, it's been what, seven or eight years ago now that we were even writing that stuff. I think that was something where I had revisited a lot of the books that um, I brought this one out. This is the first one I ever read when I was 12 or 13. This is the first book I ever read about Tecumseh. And I probably have 15 books on Tecumseh, something like that. But this one got my heart and I really uh, got a lot out of it. And this is my first uh, first examples I ever saw of any Shawnee words in this book or any Shawnee names. I think at the time I was revisiting a lot of that stuff. And at whatever point I was at in the book, it was about the death of Tecumseh mm -hmm. and you start thinking about that stuff and, and you realize that, you know, maybe the music that you're writing is coming out at that time for a particular reason, depending on how out there or spiritual you are, that I just happen to be reading this important passage and maybe the two things are happening at the same time for a reason. And like, wow, you know, I feel really moved because you know, uh, Tecumseh tried to give his people so, so much, um, so much hope. Like he knew as a prophet that he was going to fall in battle the next day. And he told everybody fight on here is the ramrod from my, uh, my flintlock. You need to run over to me and, and tap me with this when I fall in battle and I will rise again, which he knew wasn't true but they needed to have something some encouragement because he's like you know i'm gonna fall in battle you're gonna see it you need to bring me back and that kept everybody's spirits up and i i forget the every single detail of this but basically his body was was hidden from uh from the enemy so that he wouldn't be scalped and mutilated and pieces of his body taken for trinkets they put somebody else in his place mm. and they took him aside and hid him and that's why um the song title is not about the day of his death it's about the day after mm -hmm. he died on the fifth and uh during that time there was great mourning and a private burial and things like that and i don't know i just moved me i thought of that scene in my mind and and i thought you know this piece that i'm writing it's not the most somber thing it's not like a like a doom type of feel to it but it's it's somewhere between that and, and uplifting it's it's somewhere somewhere in the middle depending on the part of that song 
like this music really fits that theme really well. How would I get that across lyrically? Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of uh, kind of intimidating. That's a really deep topic to try to present in a, a naked song like that. That's not a black metal song with, you know, mm-hmm. it's like sung and harmonies and you can hear the words. And yeah, I was kind of nervous about that one. And uh, I was also nervous that most of that album was really heavy and throwing a song that's essentially like a folk ballad in there. And I thought, are people going to hate this? And some people say it's their favorite one on there and it's not even a metal song. So um, I'm glad some people enjoyed it, but no, that's, that's a really good, that's a really good point. And sometimes I forget about these things. They come out and I listen to it as a finished product. And I think, you know, I can't really remember all the details of how this came to be. Uh, but I do know that, that I come up with the, the music. I don't know if I've ever come up with lyrics. I'm trying to think of an example of something where I came up with the lyrics and then wrote the song later to match that. I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. For anyone uh, who was curious, by the way, who's listening, uh, the book that he showed was called Panther in the Sky. Uh, so by, um, let's hear James Alexander. James Alexander Thom. So if you're if you're curious what that is, because yeah, we don't we unfortunately don't have any visuals. So uh, yeah, Panther in the Sky. So I mean, broadly speaking, though, with these themes, um, you know, one of the most notable things about your lyrics, of course, is that you're investigating Native American, especially uh, Shawnee traditions, history, and spirituality. Um, of course, in metal, as you've said, uh, traditional ancient cultures, especially uh, mostly of European ones. Are fairly yeah. well represented, but Native American cultures is not. So, what was kind of the impetus for investigating uh, Native American and Shawnee culture so thoroughly in your lyrics? And why does metal uh, serve as such an appropriate vehicle for the exploration of these cultural practices? Well, uh, on the first point, there there seems to be like an explosion right now, actually, of of Native bands. Uh, there, there's like a ton now, and uh, I've what was it Thanksgiving day uh, on Sirius XM uh, that show bloody roots and Christie. I got into my car and they were playing our new song and I was like, Whoa, that's really cool. We haven't even released that yet. And you're playing <laughs> it on there. Uh, he had quite a few bands, including Testament, a very well-known mm-hmm. band mm-hmm. Uh, was on there, but there, there were uh, a lot is that blue hummingbird on the left was one of them. And, um, all kinds of bands that have come out uh, of, of nowhere. Uh, well, I can't say that. I don't know if they came out of nowhere. I just didn't know of them before. And, and I'm not real in the loop. I'm, I'm a little older now and I uh, have a harder time following everything that's out there. But I know there's way more than there were a few years ago. Mm. I didn't really know of any. Um, well, as, as far as the other part of the question, though, uh, this is researching this stuff and learning about this and and going going to these different historical places around here it's just been it's been my thing for for so many years as a hobby outside of any music or whatever it's like you know i have some i have some free time and i want to go out in the woods well where am i going to go well i'm going to seek out a place that i know was a camp or a place that i know two bodies of water came together which would have been a camp 
and I start to see the, the lay of the land through a more like archaeological perspective or uh, frame of mind of like, where did people like to be? And you start finding signs of that. You start learning where petroglyphs are. You start learning where flint and arrowheads and pottery and things like that are. And um, it's fairly common to find that stuff here, believe it or not. I don't know um, if there is a um, parallel thing in, in Australia with Aboriginal culture. Um, it's something that I don't know enough about and I should be asking you all some questions mm -hmm. about that. Um, but anyway, it's kind of the thing that I nerd out about mm -hmm. is the, these details. And it's not just history in general. I don't like really get too excited reading books about the Civil War or, or even like world history, not to sound narrow-minded. I mean, obviously, uh, where I grew up, uh, my grandparents were in World War II. So we learned a lot about what caused the First and Second World War. Uh, my dad was in Vietnam. So I know a lot about that era. And we learned a lot about the American Revolution in this country growing up. My thing was, from the time I started reading that book, I started reading the, the narratives of America. And I started, it became, okay, Here's the best way I can describe it. When you go to a record store, you're probably not looking for like Adele and stuff like that. You're like, I want to see some like rare uh, King Diamond stuff, or I want, uh, I don't know, some demo that I always wanted from this band or something, or like, uh, oh, wow, they have like Eucharist or something cool that you don't see all the time in a record store. I'm going to pick that up. When I go to bookstores, like I look for niche things like authors from the late 1700s, early 1800s. And I find them sometimes mm -hmm. I find them in these antique stores or in, in my area. And they're, you know, from like the early 1800s and you look it up, they're worth a couple hundred dollars. And, you know, you get it for ten dollars. That's like my my like record store thing. <laughs> <laughs> is to find these historical books and i look through it and i'm like is there any mention of like any of my ancestors in here like i want to know what they were doing <laughs> here mm. i know general things but i want to know specifics i want to uh, you know besides just where did they live and like what did they do and stuff i wanted to know um and i found some things in books like that so again i i nerd out about that stuff when i read it and it's just the most interesting topic to me along with uh prehistory in general and uh, local archaeology and uh, arrow point types and pottery types and things like that. And um, I don't know if I know how to write much about anything else. Like I did that Coldfells album. Um, that project ended up falling apart and uh, kind of uh, wasn't the best best ending with that that band it kind of burnt some bridges and things but um lyrically i got an opportunity to write poetic almost literature type lyrics that weren't about indians <laughs> and it was hard it was really <laughs> hard it took me a long time and i love how it turned out but i was like i can't wait to write about you know what i'm used to writing about <laughs> Mm. So 
and the other part was why does why is metal a good vehicle for that? Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, and well, I'll give my my connection with that. Two things really stick out to me. Okay, one is when the Karelian Isthmus came out, Amorphous, the first Amorphous full length. And I heard a song from that on the uh, on a compilation that, that blew my mind, and I was just like, "This this is the most awesome death metal. It's epic. It's it's not gory. It's not even necessarily brutal." But I got that CD, and the the, the first full song on there made me want to like swing an axe in battle, and I was like, "Nothing else conveys that dark story." You know, you watch movies and, you know, some Braveheart type of movie or something, and there's a symphonic score going in, in the background. It always has like a Celtic type of feel to me, those things, those battle scenes. But outside of that, where people that you're watching are portraying the action with some sort of battle type music, um, you know, think of a bowl thrower song. How could that not be metal? It can't be anything else. It's just, um, and, Again, case in point, the song that you asked about, about Tecumseh, uh, October October 6th, that one I don't think would be a good metal song. And we didn't make it one. We made it like a folk song. Mm. So I like having a project that that stuff can is acceptable. I don't think a song that sounds like October 6th would fit well on a bolt thrower record. Mm. It definitely mm. wouldn't. It wouldn't. Um, so that's one thing is, I guess, early amorphous and bolt thrower, both really, really good example of uh, not what they consider war metal now, but in my mind, it was like metal about wars yeah. at the time, early 90s stuff. Um, and the other thing was um, the, the tribe group that uh, we don't meet up anymore very often. We've all scattered so much over the years, but uh, going back from 1997 98 through about the time the oto record came out 2011 maybe we were we were meeting more frequently and um the guy who was our our leader my my mentor chris allen um and this was his band migos and uh he just told me that they're back together now apparently and uh, going to be playing in the Pittsburgh area here soon. Uh, this is their demo. It's called uh, Return of the Thunderers, 1999. Migos. Migos is from uh, Migosawin, which is Shawnee for uh, the Shawnee fighting arts. It's basically martial arts, Native American martial arts. Uh, mm-hmm. The art of war, the art of hand-to-hand fighting and messing people up. This is their full length. Sorry about the glare. Open season. Uh, this came out, uh, I don't know when this came out, maybe 2000, 2001. And that's a nice picture of them here uh, with a long sword and a, and a musket on the back of there. You can see that out in the woods of Pennsylvania, the Laurel Highlands. The reason I'm bringing this up is, uh, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a uh, group I was in in college that had nothing to do with the subject matter that that I'm exploring now 
um, and just trying to trying to keep that band together and just write some. I don't know. We were we weren't very together, but I had a demo and I was like, here's the stuff we're doing. They're listening to that. That sounds good, man. You guys need to come up Pittsburgh and play. And um, I think the um, vocalist. Well, for example, Schumach Wawakochite. That's not a very common name to, to hear for uh, a singer of a metal band because that's his Shawnee name. His name's Barry. And I think at the time he was going into incantation. I think he was playing an incantation at the time or something too. Um, but anyway, these guys were using our, our names from our group. I went by Nachachwin. They didn't, they didn't call me Aaron. They called me Nachachwin in this group. And, um, these guys were using that for their, their music project and uh, to see these song titles. You know, it wasn't until I saw them play that I got this demo. I didn't even know that they had one. And when I looked at it, I was like, this is a little different because I think um, the drummer who's good friend, good friend of mine was playing in Rotrevor at the time. And Rotrevor re really wasn't about native atop native topics so i started seeing these uh monito and uh nisa madakwi um these akamon these native uh and algonquin words it's like you could do that you make metal about this it's like i guess i've always kind of wanted to do that but not to that extent and that was the big thing for me is, as you can probably relate to, was the words. Mm -hmm. I didn't work. I didn't grow up hearing these words. And I was like, you guys kind of did in your family. Like, let's speak that language. <laughs> so we started or I started learning more and more stuff. And um, that was that was the bridge for me is when you go out and have an experience and you speak a language. Uh, you're speaking words of a language that was spoken in this area for a very long time that no longer is. And even out in, in Oklahoma, I think there's only about 200 native speakers left the last time I checked. Um, it's for your Australian audience or, or for anybody else that, you know, a lot of these tribes were moved out of here in 1830 and relocated to Missouri, Oklahoma and Kansas. And uh, there's very few tribes. There's the um, uh, Monacan and uh, one branch of the Cherokee that still has their ancestral homeland in the east. And uh, I think the Pogusset in Connecticut. There's not very many. Most have been relocated. And um, so I started learning ancient languages through text messages because those guys live an hour and a half away from me and we would meet up a couple times a month. But uh, in between, I'd say, you know, let's text in this language. <laughs> so I had these notebooks and I wrote down everything that was used and I have like extensive notes because I really wanted to learn it. And uh, to make things even more confusing is the dialect that we're, we're using is, is very old and kind of archaic, no longer used. And, um, that's what I call Mountain Shawnee Lenape dialect. And um, some of the words are pronounced differently. And some of them uh, are, are different words altogether. So how do you go about learning a, a form of a language that's 
no longer spoken and the people who spoke it a lot of them died through disease and starvation and warfare how do you get to know that you know so i had some sources i used whatever sources i can uh to come up with this stuff um and it's really really interesting stuff but i don't know if i'm going beyond the scope of your question right now well they're actually kind of jumping to um a question that we had a bit later so hmm. i'm actually just kind of move forward and hop into that which is that what is the actual process of writing metal in shawnee like like how do you choose words and phrases that feel metal or that fit kind of this metal music out of you know the the vast range of terms that are available what what process is involved of making uh this language fit you know a metal theme or a metal feel or you know metal riff well, I, I'm not I'm not a fluent speaker. I'm not even, you know, highly knowledgeable and I'm not very conversational with it either because I, I have a lot stacked against me as far as making that happen. But some of the things that I have learned seem to flow in a, in a musical way. And, and I've had it uh, described to me that uh, that's one of the al algic languages that kind of flows like French. It's kind of musical, you know, so um, and knowing that you accent the second syllable, the word and such like that, such things like that helps you to, uh, you know, kind of move the, the lyrics over top of the, over top of the riff. But um, it takes a lot of, for me, it takes a lot of study and like consultation. Like, am I, am I saying this right? You know, I need, I need to check on this stuff from somebody that's more knowledgeable than myself. And I've, definitely say that uh that he is and and always has been uh the most knowledgeable person on the topic that i've ever met and i would say in any state <laughs> <laughs> highly highly knowledgeable person that i was um backstory on that too the the mm. first the first band that i was ever playing in um just prior to that you know i'd had a lot of conversations with my family about my great-grandma and stuff and the time that my my mom spent with her and stuff and you know, you know she was indian and then i'm like what, what are you talking about like we don't have any indian tradition we don't have like reservations and things and they're, they're like well you can you can trace it back and, and learn more about it but back when we were kids like you didn't really talk about it very much because that was like the worst thing you could be <laughs> nobody wanted to admit to being that you couldn't own land back then um and People were very racist against certain ethnic groups, and that was one of them. So I don't know. I think that's kind of the, the nature of genocide is not just blatant murdering of a people, but killing of their culture by making mm -hmm. it unacceptable. So that was a, a big revelation for me. Like, what do you mean? Didn't you ask her all this stuff? Like what her grandparents and great grandparents were doing? No, we were just kids and we, we weren't supposed to talk about that very much. And so this made it very hard for me in a, a more uh, accepting period of time that we live in now versus 60, 70 years ago when my mom and her generation were kids. And my granddad, he, he'd be over 100 now. Back then, he said, yeah, you, you didn't talk about that. Um, so I'd ask him all these questions. He's like, ah, I wish you could talk to my cousin. He knew more. 
things like that. But this is so frustrating. So I have to rely on um, historical sources and stuff and my friends that I meet. So that's that's where I'm going with this is uh, when I joined that first band that the drummer was like, you need to write to this guy uh, that plays in Rochefort. He plays he plays death metal. He plays the drums and he's an Indian. You should write to him. I was like, OK, cool. So I started writing and he wrote back pages and pages of stuff. All this. I was like, this is the most interesting stuff ever. And we've been friends ever since. So he's been like a great consultant for for what I'm doing. And um, uh, he, he it, it would not exist if I had not met him. It would be very minimal and probably kind of cheesy uh, because he's got me on the path that I need to be on. That, that I feel inside that I need to be on. Um, the process. Well, I think that I need to be having those conversations and it grows out of that because I don't know everything. And I, I'm like, you know, you can't go to Rosetta Stone or do a It just, it doesn't exist. And well, we had, uh, Don Greenfeather, who was a chief of the Shawnee in the 90s, came through and met with met with Andaqua. And um, this was a big help. Oh, it's funny language dictionary. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. This is from the tribe. And, and I don't I don't know if they wanted this to go out beyond the tribe or not. But I mean, you can see this stuff. It's very thorough. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it's uh, grammar and syntax, not just um, uh, glossary or not right. just vocabulary, right? So um, this is um, not unlike case languages like Russian, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas you know we are in English very limited on cases. What is there like two? And yeah. Yeah, and Russian has six, and I think Finnish has like 12 or something crazy. This has a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And once you learn the um, the roots, the, the pronoun roots, the noun roots, and the plural suffixes and stuff like that, um, we used a game. Okay, I'll put it this way. We had a bunch of vocabulary. And you put it together and it doesn't make speech. It makes words. Right. You know, it's almost like if somebody were learning English and I said, here's 28 nouns, make a sentence out of them. That's what the, that's what it's like trying to recreate these um, uh, Ohio Valley Indian languages. You, you might learn a few words here and there. And you know that like our closest bigger town is called Wheeling. And that, that came from a Lenape word uh, uh, about uh, skull or head because they had a skull on a on a on a stick that said we'll kill you if you come in here <laughs> so that's where the name of that that city comes from so you know that word and you learn moccasin which comes from uh, shawnee Makathena, and mm -hmm. you learn uh mississippi which means big river in shawnee in algic languages and things like that and you learn these various words as an american uh, just because there's so many place names for it. Mm -hmm. And then if you dig into it a little deeper, you find these glossaries and these books full of, you know, Native American languages, whatever. Here's here's one, a good example for you. 
Christian Indian prayer is so ironic. <laughs> this is like always the thing of like, let's give 30 Indian languages and we'll, all of them will be a translation of a Christian passage, which is so weird. Um, but anyway, I could compare the different okay. things in here. Mm-hmm. Kind of a set of stone tile thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Decoding the mystery. So I had this dictionary and there's also this uh, Ronald Chrisley, which in some ways I prefer. This is older, um, 1992. It's only older by four years than the other one I have. This is a wonderful book. This is, this taught me a lot. And there's a lot about grammar and syntax. And there's a lot about um, case stuff, but there's more vocabulary, I'd say, in this one, too. So I don't want to sound inauthentic with language. So it was really hard to like get the grammar part down because there's, there's not many people to check it with. And miraculously, my friend knows like a million things with this. And, and um, so the problem was we have a group of people that are of mixed descent that, that would meet up. Uh, some are, are Cherokee descendants, some are Lenape, some are Wyandotte, some are Shawnee, uh, some are whatever. Uh, mixed or uh, Minkwa Mingo is like a, a mixed blood type of type of thing, mixed tribe. Um, so it's okay. Let's all to get let's all get together and speak English is what it was. We know this word, and when I pointed this thing, it's Wethigakwa, and when I when I smoke this thing, it's Sanitoga. You know, but how do we speak the language? So the thing for us that they got it further and got it to the point to where I could like make some song lyrics mm-hmm. was this game called, where are your keys? Are you familiar with that? No, 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 no idea. No. Wow. Okay. This guy's name's Evan Gardner, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And he came up with this game or somebody it's probably based off of a native game. Um, it's called Where Are Your Keys? And it was designed to uh, protect endangered languages that may only have one speaker left or five or 10 speakers left. And these are obviously native languages in Canada and the United States, um, mainly in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but I've seen videos of them doing Abenaki, which is up in the New, Le- New England region. So they're fluently speaking a language, you know, from 400 years ago. It's, it's amazing to watch these videos. So the way it works is you have these objects. Uh, he starts you out with a, a rock, a stick, a red pen, and a black pen. And you go around and you learn this base language, which is American Sign Language. You say, what is that? You say, that is a rock. That is a stick. That is a pen. And things like that and then you start act- adding adjectives uh black and red and so on and you learn the word for i and me and yes and no and can i have that will you give that to me things like that you learn that in sign language is a bridge language and once you get good with that it's kind of like if you learn a card game you could probably learn other card games once you know one card game You just need somebody that's knowledgeable enough in that language to guide you through replacing what you're doing with your hands with the language. So we started, it started being like, what is that? In Shawnee, what is that? That is a cigarette. Can I have that cigarette? Will you give that to me? 
will you write this with the pen? Can I have that? Thank you. Things like that, because it gave us a structure for that language to exist and the, the grammar fell right in. It's almost like how the language formed to begin with, however long ago, and it gets whittled away over time. We obviously weren't doing it perfectly, but at the same time, we were conversing. The first time, all these years of meeting up and being like, yeah, we know all these words, but we can't really speak it. We can't. We lost that. And none of our grandparents can really give that to us anymore. So, yeah, that's how it got to be. You know, like on Oto, there's full sentences and things, mm. not just words that I learned out of Chrisley's thing. But you got to be careful. You got to be careful. And here's why. This is the, the most underrated aspect of native culture is sense of humor. We have people under duress in the late 18th century being interrogated by United States military officers saying, you know, Washington wants us to come here and interview you to learn how to speak your language so that we can buy and trade. And so, you know, that land over there that you have, like, we really want that. And we want to tell you in your language that we want that. And then you can go over here somewhere else. So to learn that language, you know, they said, okay, uh, I think his name's uh, Major Denny. We need you to go interview these <laughs> Shawnee chiefs, these Lenape chiefs, sit down with them, give them presents and have them tell you the word for this thing. And you write it down and you make us like a glossary so we can communicate. So you get things like, I think the word for captain or general that they gave them in that language was smallpox covered penis, I think was the word that they gave them for their cat. Right. So some of these aren't really authentic. So if you're learning stuff from a glossary from way back then, oh, it's got to be correct. They were talking to these Indians. Well, they didn't always give them the correct word because it was really funny to give them the wrong word. Sure. So you got to watch out for that stuff too. You got to check your sources. So uh, at the same time, in, uh, to go in, into your, your uh, question here, what I'm doing with these things in, in only one instance is really historically accurate, and that's on the first record, this Pilawa, which means turkey, right here. This is a song that I found out of a book from the early 1800s, and mm -hmm. it, I was, you know, it was a... Uh, a white woman who was captured and um, either escaped or released. And later in life, when she was a, a senior citizen at that point, they interviewed her about her experience. And they said this was like a lullaby that they would sing to the children. And she sung it and they wrote it in a notation so I could recreate it from an old woman in the 1800s remembering her experiences as a child in the late 1700s, remembering what these tunes are and me hearing it and singing it and recording it. Um, just the chain of events that would have had to happen for that song to survive. I think that it should be lost to history. And I was fascinated that there is actual music that exists of this uh, Francis Densmore book too, uh, but I think that's seminal music, which um, 
you know, similar language group, but I'm, I don't have any like tie to, so I'm not going to like recreate, recreate any of that music, but it's fascinating that you could, you could come up with, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe an acoustic guitar piece that takes that melody and you can improvise on an, on an old tune that nobody's ever heard before. So that is an authentic thing. And the syllables that she gave them that she sang as a kid, were those accurate? I don't know. I don't know if they're hundred percent accurate. It's hard to remember the details of everything from when you're a kid, when you're a senior citizen, um, it's as accurate as I can get. But the thing that I learned from studying this music uh, at some point, I should have brought this book up here. That group, the, the, the Loyal Hannah band group that I was uh, part of for many years, they said, we need you to be the music guy because we need to do some, some dances for our Thanksgivings. And we need you to recreate these songs that are in, in these books that we have. Or this one specific book has a lot of them because a guy wrote them down in the seventies from visiting uh, reservations. Um, I said, well, I know how to read that. And they have the syllables, but none of the syllables make an actual word. They're called vocables. I don't know if this exists in other cultures too, but the song is not, they're not words, they're syllables and, and they mean a certain thing, but they're not actual words. So I, that's where Heyahona came from, was my take on, well, like, if it was, if ancient times hadn't changed till now, and we were still, we were still writing songs like that, like, how would I write a song? What would it sound like? And that's what came out, that part. Um, I was just really inspired to do that. So there's that. And then, um, I knew this, uh, this girl, this Shawnee girl from uh, around Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, named Michelle. And she had, I don't know if this group is still active. I haven't talked to her in a while. Uh, it's called Mother Earth's Daughters is her group. It's these, uh, these ladies that sing um, some traditional songs. And there's some... Uh, I believe some, some more modern songs as well, but there are Shawnee songs, Micmac, um, and Kickapoo, all closely related Algonquin tribes, Shawnee, Micmac, and uh, Kickapoo. And when I heard these songs, I was like, wow, you, you really put that together well. You, you know these songs really, really well and, and did... Uh, great versions of them on a recording like this is like gold to me because most of the the cds that i see for sale are western tribes um they're tribes that they're they're eastern tribes but they've been moved almost 200 years ago and they've intermingled and they're like a lot of intertribal songs or there are a lot of sioux and lakota songs and things like that and i love that stuff too but I had a hard time finding music that pertained to this area and the history of this area and stuff that I'm connected to. So these were songs that I'd never heard before. And I got a, I guess, a 10th generation copy of a, a CD by uh, the United Remnant Band, Shawnee in Ohio. They flew to France to record these songs. I never understood that. 
but they flew to France and they recorded these. And they're some of the only recordings of songs that some of them I haven't heard in person for like 25 years. And I have recordings of them. And uh, this stuff is like super, super uncommon. So I've got this list. This is a list of 69 songs. Um, oh, geez, they're from all over. They're uh, Micmac Lakota, Shawnee, Lenape, uh, Ute. Isn't that Utah? Yeah. Ute tribe, yeah. right? There's a Ute song on here. There's uh, the Battle of New Orleans, which is not a... Uh, not a native song that I know of, but um, it could be performed at, at a powwow or something. And a lot of intertribal songs. So anyway, these are the lyrics that they compiled for, for all these. There's no actual written music on here, but the words to these tribe or these songs, this veteran song and flag song and stuff. And a lot of these are uh, these vocables that aren't necessarily words they're like syllables and i guess you could say that a lot of other songs use that they say you know hey hey baby or something like that. <laughs> you know they aren't, aren't really getting like a uh, necessarily a, a concrete idea they're they're more conveying a feeling sure. and uh yeah there's all kinds of other stuff that i got i have stuff that i got online and these are the lists they're like is this for real or is this something that somebody mm -hmm told to a, a soldier 200 years ago as a joke um one other source i have here that, that i find quite interesting here for for one reason um this is the book of matthew from the bible in shawnee and it's huge right this is not a common thing that you mm -hmm. see and this was written by um well I should say transcribed written i don't know who wrote the bible and that like god i guess <laughs> like, you know so uh this was uh transcribed by uh thomas wildcat alfred the the grandson of tecumseh and uh following the war of 1812 and indian removal and, and such uh these people were moved their various parts of canada ohio uh indiana into the central United States and were um, living alongside other tribes that they weren't living alongside before. And the difference in the language in 1881 versus a hundred years before that in Tecumseh's time is remarkable. It's like from Spanish to Portuguese the the letters used the the dialect the i have a hard time even following this it's much more uh muskogee and cherokee influence because of tribes they were living around and i yeah i can't even follow it like i can read a lot of stuff from older sources and from modern sources but the stuff that they used in here i just yeah I'm kind of lost with this whole thing. So that influence in just a short amount of time was huge. And, and it might be the symbols that they were using too for certain letter letters uh, versus others that I don't recognize in here. That's where, you know, I have a lack of linguistics training to, to see that. And, you know, when people put those in the universal pronunciation codes of like, mm -hmm. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, like 
yeah, I'm like lost on that stuff. It, I, I know it's it's kind of like music theory. If I sat down and somebody explained it and I worked with it, I know I could figure it out. But I've never I've never gone that far with this stuff. Mm. It's more cultural than general linguistics knowledge, I guess. You know. Mm. So yeah, that's that's kind of <laughs> what helped me form this process. Sorry, that was like really in depth answer, but that's uh, great. I get. Uh, I get really interested in this stuff. So, Thank you for listening to Lingua Italica. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you stay tuned for our next episode. Before we leave, we just wanted to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. <laughs>